Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10? And our text this morning will be verses 19 through 25. So that's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. We actually move this morning in the text to the exhortation portion of the letter of Hebrews as we've looked for almost a year or more at the previous verses of this book. In the first ten chapters and a half are primarily teaching us why Christ is superior to all things. In the preeminence of Christ we have learned about how Christ is greater than angels, how Christ is greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. And then we have seen how he's greater than the, the great high priesthood of the Levitical system. We have seen that the new covenant that he ushers in is greater and better. And we have dealt with for the last year all of this rich, deep theology of the person and nature of Christ to get to this one point of how we're to live in light of who Christ is. In fact, that is the point of salvation, is that we're transformed into the image of Christ. And so as we think about all that has been taught so far, it has been taught to, for, for, uh, to form a foundation for us upon which we live in light of it. And so though there's only a couple of chapters in comparison to the several chapters of doctrine, there's only a couple of chapters here on how we're to live in light of that, we see that the necessary point is that we cannot live a life built upon sand, but we have to live our life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And that's why you have ten chapters of doctrine. And what is interesting is, in terms of this exhortation that, become, that comes and how we're to live our life, the first exhortation after ten chapters of telling us of the nature and person and work of Christ, the first exhortation, so you can think of this as the emphasis in the mind of God for the church to the Hebrews and for us today, it begins with the idea of worship. It begins with the idea of worship. The exhortation comes in how we worship and the danger of neglecting worship. We're going to be told to persevere in the faith. And we see that what is directly connected, vitally a part of our perseverance in the faith is actually our gathering together to worship. So if we think we're going to persevere in the faith apart from the gathering of the saints, we're vitally mistaken about that. Tragically mistaken. Because God tells us actually our gathering together is the means of our growth and transformation in light of what Christ has done for us. So let us hear the word of God beginning in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. You see in the text here, the first point is a reminder of what we have in Christ. And it begins with that word, therefore. So the therefore is connecting us to what has been stated about Christ for those ten chapters. And because of what we have been taught about Christ and what his, who He is, we then move into this, what is, therefore, this is how we live. But prior to getting to how we're to live, He says, let me just review one more time. Let me just review everything we've said in a concise statement. And as you look at verses 19 through 21, it's a review of everything that we have been told. And then you see three exhortations that come. And those exhortations begin with the word, let us. And then there's an exhortation to that. And so before we get into that exhortation, what is the review that we're given? The first thing is that we're reminded of is that we have access, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the way of the blood of Jesus. And so we're reminded that we have confidence to go into the presence of God. That's what the the holy places is referring to, is that we have this confidence And the means of that confidence is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. Thus we are allowed into the holy places because the blood of Christ makes us holy. And what I want you to notice about this, it says this is something we have. That's a present reality. That's something that's active in the Christian life. It's not something that's subjective, but rather it's something objective. We have confidence. The Christian has a confidence to enter into the holy place. You can think of that word confidence. Also, uh, another way of saying it would be a boldness. Another way of thinking of it is a, uh, a freedom of access. A freedom of access to God is what this is speaking of. Something that was lost in the fall. Hence the the cherubim with the flaming swords guarding the presence of God. What we are told is that that has been removed. You know, in our often prideful and arrogant thoughts of our own self-worth and our own self-accomplishments and how good we are, we might be tempted to think of, of course I can enter into God's presence. Of course I can be in the presence of God. I'm a a good person. But what we have to actually see, and what the, the Hebrews, to whom this letter was written, how they would have also saw this, is it's actually a fearful thing to come into the presence of God. And to be in the presence of God would kill someone. 
You think of Moses, who said, I cannot see or be in the presence of God or I will die. And so what is this confidence referring to? Well, you think again, if you were to see God, you would die. You think of Manoah, which was the father of Samson, when he was in the presence of the angel of the Lord and he realized it was the presence of the angel of the Lord. He said, we will surely die. We've lost a sense of that. What we do today is we think that we've made God our buddy. And yes, Scripture says that I am a friend of God. Christ himself calls his people friend. But we've translated that into how we treat friends that we have here on earth. And so we've lost this idea that we, there, it's a fearful thing to come into the presence of God. Because God requires absolute holiness as God himself is pure being. So he requires purity. He requires perfection. And we recognize that we do not have this on our own. Our conscience testifies against this. Our actions testify. In the Old Testament, the access to God was prohibited by law. And there was a fear of death. And only the high priest once a year could go into the presence of God. And even that was veiled with the smoke of incense so that they could not be in the presence of God fully. So what does the text tell us, though? We have confidence. We have boldness. We have a freedom of access to the presence of God, to the holy places. And what is we have to note about this, and this is how it formulates our thoughts on our freedom of access to God and our confidence to God and our boldness before God, the grounds of our confidence has nothing to do with ourselves. The grounds of our confidence has nothing to do with our works or our goodness, but the grounds of our access to the holy places is the blood of Christ. And this is speaking of our justification. That before God we are declared, that's what justification is, a legal declaration that you are no longer guilty and held accountable. In justification, as Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, it takes away that which hinders, namely our guilt or the sentence of condemnation. So justification takes away that guilt which hinders our ability to go into the presence of God. And so our boldness, our confidence, it rests in and on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our boldness, our confidence, freedom of access to God is solely resting on Christ and has nothing to do with my own works and self-righteousness because I lack any of it. And this comes about, verse 20, we're told by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so, whereas the previous verse is telling us that we have access to the holy places, and the grounds of that is the blood of Christ, now verse 20 begins to further delve into that and tell us why. And it begins by telling us this: the newness of it. It's, it's new, and the reason it's new is because it's now opened. It's living 
in contrast to the deadness of the law, and this is certainly rooted in the resurrection of Christ, and you think about how we've already come to grips with Christ as our living high priest in Hebrews 7.24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That is, he's living forever. Verse 25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. That new way that Christ has opened, the new and living way, is based upon the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that he opened this, and a very interesting word, which means inaugurated. It's something that's new. It's meaning under the old covenant, it was not possible. The law never provided a way for the worshiper to be in the presence of God. And the means of this is his flesh. And you'll notice what it says, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. I hope that that brings you to the, to the thought of what takes place on the cross. And really that this is a, a commentary on what Christ does upon the cross when the, the, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom, signifying that access to God was now possible because of what Christ had done. In many ways, this is a commentary on the tearing of the, of the curtain that takes place in the temple. We see in Matthew 27, verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What Matthew just states, and that we're to assume a theological thing from Matthew, the author of Hebrews tells us this is what Matthew meant, is that the tearing of the curtain and the significance of the top to the bottom is that it could not be rent by the hands of a a man. But this is something that Christ did to where now, by the breaking of his flesh, we have access to God. And that curtain is certainly referring to that separation that separated the people from God. Now we're no longer separated from God. Verse 21 tells us, reminds us rather, what Christ is doing for us on our behalf. Notice what it says in verse 21, And since we have a great high, great priest over the house of God, And this is a reminder of everything we've been told about Christ. In in the excellencies of His glory, of His person, we're reminded that He is yet a high priest on our behalf. And that He's over the house of God. And this, this house of God is clearly a reference to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We, we know that, that that is speaking of the church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we read these words, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So when you see that phrase, the household of God, and Timothy goes on to say, which is the church, it's referring to not the temple, but actually the people of God. 
When you read of the house of God in, in the Gospels, it's always referring to a literal temple. It's referring to the temple that would have been standing in the days of Christ. But when you read in the rest of the scriptures, that idea of the house of God or the temple takes on a different meaning. It's no longer brick and mortar, but it's rather a people. It's flesh and blood. And what was the house of God? Why are we called? Let's put it all together now. Why are we called as the people of God, as his children? Why are we called the temple? Why are we called the house of God? Because the house of God and the temple was the place where God's presence would come to meet with his people. So what does this say about us? God's presence is with his people now by the means of the blood of Christ and by his flesh. This is why we are called the house of God, is because the very presence of God is dwelling with His people. And now the house of God is the people of God where we are indwelt by His Holy Spirit. So very simple, and I know that we get this, but I think sometimes we take it for granted, is the people of God make up the church. We, we are His. We are bought and paid for by the blood of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. And so we become the house of God. We become the people of God. We can enter into His presence and His presence is with us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit and will always be guarded and protected that we may never fall out of the house of God, never be snatched out of the house of God, never be lured out of the house of God, or never be destroyed by the Romans like the literal house of God was. It's a promise of God's presence with His people. It is our greatest permanency that we will ever experience this side of heaven, is that we are the house of God, that His presence dwells with us forever. And it's incredible when you trace through Genesis all the way through the book of Revelations, the presence of God with His people that it is a major theme of Scripture. That which was lost in the garden is regained in Christ, and we have now. We're able to walk with God as Adam was. We are children of God by adoption. He cares for us. He takes care of our needs. He watches over us, and we are guaranteed that even when we face trials in this life, He is actually working them for our good and His glory. And we never take that for granted, what it means to be the house of God. See, we need to take seriously also another aspect of it those are the comforting aspects but we have to take a we have to take very seriously of what it means to be the household of god and just think of the threefold office of christ that he's prophet priest and king and here in the text it tells us that he is the great high priest over the house of god it's something that we have to think of and when we think of the threefold office of christ as prophet priest and king 
Think about what Scripture tells us. Christ is the high priest over the house, that He's mediating on our behalf, He's interceding, He always lives to intercede, and we take great comfort in that. But He is also Lord of this house, that is, He is the King over this house, and that He is the head of the church. He governs the church, He directs and commands the church as a prophet over the church. In other words, as Him being head over the household of God, We see all three offices of Christ over the top of us directing us on how we are to live while we are in the tent of this body now. Christ is Lord over the church. Christ is Lord over how we live. Christ is sovereign Lord over all things, and as we have seen, He's sovereign King over all things, but in a special, peculiar way, He is King and Lord over the church. His kingdom is in the heart of those that trust in Him. And so He is Lord in how we live, and as a church, as a church, He is Lord over what our mission is. He is Lord over how we worship. He is Lord over how we gather. And because He is Lord over those things, we're not free to do it any way we want, but rather like Adam, where we have access to all the wonderful things of the garden, we have all the wonderful access to the things that God has given us in Christ, but we're not free to do it any way we want. Because He's Lord over the house. He is Lord over all things. The promises that we have of the new covenant, that we shall know God, that we have forgiveness of God, they're they're clearly related here to what we have, not only in salvation, but how this relates to our worship of God, that we have uninhibited access to God because of the one-time and sufficient sacrifice of Christ, and we have His presence, but that also means He's also Lord over all things. So this is the reminder before the exhortation. This is what he reminds us of. And it's simply this to summarize it. Christ assumed flesh and blood and opens the way for us so that we are rooted and qualified to enter into his work. That's the reminder of what we have in Christ. This is a present reality. You have these things in Christ. Now from there, the author then moves us into, okay, how do we live now in light of the fact that Christ is Lord over all things? And it's, it's incredible how these three exhortations come. They come through the three lasting virtues. What are the three lasting virtues that we see in Scripture? Faith, hope, and love. And that's how these are expressed. You'll notice verse 22. It's the expression of faith. In verse 23, it's the expression of hope. And then in verse 24, it's the expression of love. And so those become the forming things of how we live. Verse 22 gives us the first exhortation. And it's this, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now notice when he says, let us, notice the us, it's plural, he's including himself in this. Let us come to God. Let us draw near. Let us approach God. This is not the only place that we 
see this in Scripture, we're also told in James that we may approach God. In James chapter 4 and verse 7, we see this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So let us draw near to God. What does it mean to approach God? Is it in prayer? Yes. Is it when you're coming to the Word of God and you're spending time in the Word, learning of the glorious truths of the Gospel? Yes. Is it worship? Yes. The context, though, of Hebrews has been dealing with the sacrificial system which we know the sacrificial system was a type of what Christ would do and what Christ would inaugurate. And so the whole thing is, has been about this time of worship in Israel. And then as we see this here, we see the plural use of the words, let us. So what does this have to do with primarily? I think the context points us to the fact that this is not so much as what we do as individuals, though yes, we draw near to God as individuals, but this is primarily because it's an instruction to the church. It's dealing with our corporate worship. That we are to draw near to God. And why we draw near is because it says we have a true heart. That's a cleansed heart. Elsewhere it's described in Hebrews as a a believing heart. And why? Because we have something new that's happened to us. Our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. And so we may draw near with this true heart, a cleansed heart, a believing heart, and we're told, in full assurance of faith, and that is to be absolutely sure about something. And the only way that we could be absolutely sure about anything or to have any sort of assurance of faith, is if that assurance is rooted in God, that we are forgiven of our sins. And so we may draw near with absolute assurance. Why? Because of what Christ has done, and that has nothing to do with what I could do or can't do. It all rests upon Christ. It says this, why? With our hearts sprinkled clean. What is that... Hearts sprinkled clean. And speaking of regeneration, regeneration is, is just the word for being born again, for being born of above, to have that heart of stone replaced with the heart of flesh. And, but that, uh, that language of heart sprinkled clean, it does draw us back to the old covenant. The Old Covenant members were sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb and they would commit themselves to obedience. They would say, we will do all that's written in the words of this book and then they would fail to be obedient. So they never had hearts that were truly sprinkled clean. And so what we're told here in the promises of the New Covenant is that we have hearts that are actually sprinkled by Christ's blood that brings about a true change of heart, a believing heart. So when it says that our hearts are sprinkled clean, it's speaking of regeneration. And what happens after regeneration? Well, it says in our bodies washed with pure water. What is this referring to? It's referring to our act of baptism. 
In fact, the majority of ancient commentaries and modern commentaries all agree that though it doesn't say the word baptism, it's referring to our baptism. And we know this is that not a literal cleansing takes place because baptism doesn't actually cleanse us, but rather it's an expression of being cleansed. That's why it follows regeneration. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt. So it doesn't, doesn't literally cleanse us, but from the body as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're saved by Jesus Christ, and our baptism is the confession of what Christ has done. I think the order is very important here that we see this. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and then the result of that is the profession of faith in which we show in our baptism. It's not the only time that the author of Hebrews gives us this order. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, where the author tells us, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and what, what comes after that? It says an instruction about washings. And in the Greek, it's actually literally baptisms. That's following faith. That's following repentance. Is that cleansing that we do and testify before people. In the Old Testament, though this is still drawing on Old Testament language, washings in the Old Testament was the type for the antitype in the New Testament, which is baptism. Washing took place. You, see, you read in through the Old Testament over and over again how washing was to cleanse things. That they were to be set aside as holy as a priest would enter into the holy place. Even in Solomon's temple, there was a basin that was so large, it was like a swimming pool that they would gather into for cleansing. And the priest would have to do this for entrance into the holy of holies. Yet what do we know about that is that it didn't actually cleanse them. It didn't actually cleanse them at all. It was symbolic. Just as baptism doesn't actually cleanse us from sin, it's a reminder that our hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. This is a wonderful truth. This is a wonderful assurance for us. So we might ask the question, why be baptized if it, if it doesn't do something? Well, it does. It does do something. And I don't mean that in the sacerdotal sense that it, it washes away original sin. That's not what it does. It's our initiation into the church. It does that. It's our testimony before others what Christ has done. But more than that, it's a, God, a means of God's grace. And that's what we see here. It's for this purpose. It reminds us it reminds us of what Christ has done, so we draw near. So as our baptism is not a means of assurance in and of itself, the act of it, that we look upon that, we are reminded of what Christ has done internally, and we symbolically have that done externally. And so our baptism is something we may look back upon as a reminder of what God has internally done for us, and that encourages us. 
that encourages us to draw near to God. And why? Why do we are we encouraged to draw near to God? Well, we're, we're encouraged to draw near to God because we're reminded that it's not our righteousness before God, but we've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ and cleansed in the waters of baptism. Then we now may approach Him in holiness because of what He has done. Christ is the grounds of our presence with God and our ability to draw near. We have exhortation number two. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This is a call for perseverance to a persecuted church that was wavering. And why are we called to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering? It says, For he who promised is faithful. So again, what is the grounds of our holding fast to the faith, holding fast to our confession, is because the grounds of it is God himself. He who promised is faithful. Why may I hold fast to the confession? Because God is faithful. So the command and confidence is rooted in the very nature of God himself. And two things are stated here. The first is that God is faithful. And then the second is that God has promised us something. So we'll just reflect on this for a second. That God is faithful. That is, he who promised the sending of his son. After the very first sin was committed, God made a promise to mankind to bring his son. And then he provided an earthly line through the line of Judah, through the line of David, until we get to Christ. And this is recorded in history that we can read. In fact, every time we pick up our Old Testament, what we're actually reading is the unfolding of this promise of God. When we read the Old Testament and we see the unfolding of a line all the way to Christ, what we're being reminded of the entire time is this. God's faithful to his promise. Adam and Eve sinned, and he said he would send the seed of the woman. And the rest of the unfolding of Scripture is this, us seeing him sending the seed of the woman. God is faithful. God moved entire nations for the purpose of bringing forth his son. God would bring drought God would bring plenty to other places, all for the purpose of moving a people towards the birth of his son. God is faithful. The second thing is that God has promised. Because it says, he who promised. Something has been told to us. This God has gone to such great lengths for us. He has promised us. And let me say, he's just a very general big umbrella of what he has promised. He's promised us two things. If you are in Christ, he will bring you home. And if you're not in Christ, he will condemn you to an eternal hell. And he is faithful to both. That's what we're promised. Just a big view of it. If you're in Christ, he will bring you home. And if you're not in Christ, you will be under his wrath for all of eternity. This is why we must hold fast. This is why we must hold fast to Christ. Because he who promised is faithful. But what is our confession of faith that we're to hold fast to? Well, very simply, it's just what we it's just simply what we believe. 
And we've been exhorted to this many times in the text. In chapter 3 and verse 1, we're told this is, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In chapter 4 and verse 14, we're told this, Let us hold fast our confession. And so our confession is that which we believe. And now we're to hold fast to the confession of hope. What what does hope mean? One commentary said that defined hope this way, hope is living in the present on the basis of the future promises of God. That's hope. Living in the present on the basis of the future promises of God. That's why in, in Christianity, and as we understand the idea of Christian hope, hope is an assurance of things that will happen. That doesn't mean the New Testament always uses the word hope like that, because it doesn't. Paul says, I hope to come and see you, meaning there was doubt in him that he would go and see someone. But for the most part, when we're speaking of hope, we're talking about something that is sure, that spurs us on in the now. And so what is that confession of hope? Specifically, it's what we believe about God and the salvation he has given his adopted children through his son. And our confession, to be a confession of hope, must be rooted on solid ground or else it is not really that hopeful at all, is it? This excludes any semblance of having any hope in ourselves, in our works, but rather we hold fast because of Christ and what we have seen of Christ. The God-man who has given his life as a ransom so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we are to hold fast this without wavering. That's the qualification. And what does wavering mean? It means neither bending to either side. It's, it's a firm determination of something. It's something that you're standing on solid ground. You're not, you're not going back and forth on it. And, and James describes this of this going back and forth, this wavering. James says in one six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So we're not to be wavering back and forth between two choices. We're not to be wavering back and forth on what that confession of our hope is, that is Christ. Let me ask you this. Is it important to know what it is that we believe? Is it important to grow in knowledge of what it is that we confess of the Lord Jesus Christ? Might I say that it is the most important endeavor of our life? Just coming to Christ and believing that Jesus died for sins and has forgiven me, that's just the, that's just the beginning The whole life is a process of growing in knowledge of this confession of hope. And the more that we grow in our knowledge of the confession of hope, the greater our hope becomes. And that's why this connects to our third exhortation. And it comes in two two ways. It comes positively, and then it comes negatively, and then there's another positive statement. And the first positive statement is this, is let us, that's plural, let us, let us consider 
how to stir one another up to love and good works. The negatively, negative statement of this is not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. And then the positive statement, but encouraging one another. And then the text gives us a motivation for this. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, Christ is coming, so let us do these things even more so now. And it begins with this word, and let us do this first, is this, is let us consider. That is to, to contemplate something. That is to think of ways of doing something. To consider is speaking of also of a meditation of something, and it's, it's present and it's active. And so this is something that's ongoing is that we're to ongoing consider and contemplate how we might stir up one another. Now put this together. This is the idea of the Christian life, is to consider how to stir or provoke or excite one another. That is the body of Christ, the house of God, to love and good works. Part of the Christian life is contemplation of other people's needs, in other words. That's the exhortation. You see, this moves beyond merely just loving my neighbor through courtesy, but to the realm of contemplation of what is it that they need. And this is really actually getting to the true heart and meaning of the law, the moral law. The moral law says do not murder. But how do we understand that? It's not enough to just not murder, but rather we need to understand that positively. How do I promote the well-being of my neighbor? And so in other words, this is getting to the very heart of the law. The true meaning of the moral law is expressed here. It's not that we just don't do things to harm people, but rather we seek ways to help them. How do we shortchange this? Well, what the text says is this, by neglecting to meet together. And the entire passage has been about the church. And while the universal church can be seen in the phrase, the house of God, this is now taking on a local manifestation of the church, the local visible church. This is speaking of the church that is on a corner in a neighborhood. This is speaking about the church that's in a local community. This is speaking directly to what we're doing right now. It's speaking of the local church in our gathered times of worship. It says not to neglect it, and neglect means to abandon or to leave behind. And specifically, what we're not to abandon or leave behind is meeting together. That is the gathering of the saints. Now, we're not told why this was obviously becoming a problem. We're not told why this was, was happening, but it had become a habit. And that word habit is the word ethos, which means a pattern or a behavior or a custom that was becoming common to several of the people within this local body. Now, while we're not told why, the likely cause was because of the threat of persecution tied to being a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. And the pressure that they were feeling caused them to start pulling back. But what we have to see is the danger of this. And we need to be hit in the face with this. Because the, the text leads us to believe this, is that the neglecting of the saints is actually the first step towards apostasy. 
That's why it's followed by verse 26, where we have a warning against apostasy. And what is apostasy? 1 John 2.16, they were of us, but they were no really, they were never really part of us. And because it's a command, the author is calling them to not neglect it. He doesn't view them as apostates, but rather is calling them out of a sinful season or habit that could be a fruit of apostasy. So there's two ways commonly viewing this idea of neglecting. One would be a season or a habit. The second way of neglecting would be apostasy, but I think we need to see a a third manner of neglect that might help us here. There's two positive commands that all have to do with encouraging one another. So how might I neglect, and this is where it speaks to all of us probably, myself included, how might I neglect if we show up, that is only part of the process. If we just show up, that's only part of the process. If we don't do the other part, we're actually lacking because the other part is that we're called to encourage. What's amazing about this passage is the sum of the entire Ten Commandments, that is the moral law, is, is contained in these two verses. Right worship of God and love for neighbor, which show us that they are inseparable and connected. If we just see this as a command to not miss church, then we've actually missed the whole point. But I do want to start with that. In our time, we have lost an awe for God. We abuse the privilege and honor of worship. Oftentimes it's viewed for many as a priority, so as long as it doesn't get in the way of something else. And what do we know about our heart? Our heart demonstrates our desire. Worship according to God's word or a greater desire somewhere else. And whatever we prioritize, we're in essence telling God that we know a better way towards growth in our process of living in Christ. They were in fear of persecution is likely why some were neglecting. Why would we neglect? May we say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But the other aspect of this is that we need to recognize our inner independency upon one another. God has designed us in such a way that we actually need one another, and we're not complete without one another. So often the church is viewed from the standpoint of taking. And you hear it in phrases like this, and if you've said these phrases, just think through this with me. I want us to think through this. Is I got so much out of that service. And you can say, praise the Lord for how much you got out of the service. The danger is this, though, that that becomes the motivating factor of the service. So then when I don't get something out of the service, guess what I say? I didn't get nothing out of that service. When did it become about you? When did it become about me? How about this? Is that when we gather, we we are contemplating the needs of one another and what we can give. You see, rather, God tells us to not think about what we get, but rather what we can give. That we're to be looking 
for those that need encouragement. You might be the one that needs encouragement, and by you looking for encourage, a way to give encouragement to someone else, guess what? You're going to be encouraged. This is the most basic understanding of the command to imitate Christ, is looking for how you may serve others. He gives. God requires nothing. God needs nothing. He is the only self-sufficient, perfect being. He only gives. So when we gather together, let us trip over ourselves in an effort to encourage one another. And the motivation is given. The time is drawing near. The return of Christ is stated at hand. We're we're 2,000 years now closer than when these Hebrews received this. But yet the author of Hebrews tells us the day is upon us. In other words, as we draw closer to that day, day by day, to that unknown hour, we are to increase in our efforts to encourage one another. And so this morning, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, receive mercy, and let us, as a result of receiving mercy and receiving grace, show mercy and grace to one another because of who we are in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood, and that we have access to the holy places by means of his blood, by means of his body. Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation that you have given us. We rejoice in it, but may we also take seriously these these exhortations to perseverance, to holding fast, and to encouraging one another. May your Spirit and by your grace be working in us to desire these truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.